This morning, by the Spirit's power, I want to preach to you a sermon that's entitled The Confession of a Centurion. The Confession of a Centurion. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to the Gospel according to Mark, Mark chapter 15. I'll be reading verses 33 to 39. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Mark chapter 15, I'll begin reading at verse 33. I will conclude at verse 39. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding and to the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. It was Josephus, that first century historian, who said of crucifixion, it is the most wretched way to die. It was Cicero, the Roman philosopher living during the days of Jesus, who said of crucifixion, it is the grossest, cruelest, most hideous form of of execution. Crucifixion was reserved for the most vicious of criminals. It was draped in humiliating shame. It was laden with horrific pain. When you hear that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified, The question that comes to your mind must be the same question that's found on the lips of Pontius Pilate. Why? What crime did he commit? It was the Jewish high priest who said Jesus had committed the crime of blasphemy. Jesus was arrested in the garden, taken to endure an all-night barrage of numerous allegations, mock trials. At some point early in the morning hours, it was the high priest who asked Jesus, Are you the Christ? And Jesus, who did not say much on this night, simply looked at the high priest and said, I am. For you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. 
When the high priest heard Jesus, this rebel-rousing rabbi from Galilee, as he heard this perceived troublemaker declare, I am, his mind automatically went back to the ancient text in Exodus chapter 3, when it's the voice of God speaking through a burning bushes on fire but not being consumed and saying to Moses, I am who I am. This is my name. I am. And that was vocabulary that was reserved for God and God alone and now the high priest is hearing this man named Jesus declare I am he ripped his garments he declared at the top of his voice blasphemy we don't need to hear any other witnesses this man is claiming to be God now the Sanhedrin understood That while the high priest and the Jewish council saw blasphemy as a tremendous crime, it would not stick in the Roman government. The Roman government cared very little about the religious claim of blasphemy. So the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of Israel, had to come up with another crime that Jesus had committed. One that would stand the courts of the Roman Empire. So they said that Jesus was a threat to Caesar. Whenever anybody was labeled as a threat to Caesar, it always perked the ear of the consulate. So it is Pontius Pilate who has Jesus standing before him. And he asked the question, are you the king of the Jews? They are saying that you are building a kingdom One that will rival Caesar. They are saying that you are the king of the Jews and that you will lead a revolt, that you are coming against Caesar himself. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus just merely responded to Pontius Pilate, it is as you say it is. I don't think that Pilate was really intimidated by the political prowess of Jesus. I think that's why he tried to stack the odds in Jesus's favor. Pilate knew that during Passover week it was customary to release a Jewish prisoner to the Jewish nation. It was kind of like an olive branch that was extended to them by the Roman government. And so Pilate wanted to stack the odds. He said on This year, I'm just going to offer one of two possibilities. They can either release Barabbas, a known criminal, a thug, a murderous individual, one that nobody liked and nobody cared for, not even his own mama. In fact, the only place that was appropriate for Barabbas was in prison. So Pilate said, I'll lift up Barabbas or Jesus, who just days earlier, had rode into town on Palm Sunday as the triumphant king. He rode in like a rock star. And so Pilate thought to himself, this really won't be much of a choice or decision at all because clearly the nation of Israel will side with this one named Jesus versus releasing the known criminal named Barabbas. So Pilate stands in front of the Jewish crowd. He offers for them to decide. Give us Barabbas, came the reply. 
And Pilate said, why? What crime has he committed? Pointing to Jesus. What shall I do with him? Crucify him. Crucify him, came the reply. The religious leaders, the Jewish priests, the high priest had begun to kind of rouse up the crowd. And the crowd was saying with them, crucify him, crucify him. I think Pilate was shocked. I think that's why he washes his hands of the whole matter. And while this might have surprised Pontius Pilate, it did not surprise Jesus. On three occasions in Mark's gospel, Jesus predicts with great precision his impending, upcoming, inevitable death. He speaks of it in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, Mark chapter 9, verse 31, Mark chapter 10, verse 33. On three occasions, he says, the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and he must be handed over. He'll be given to the religious leaders. Uh, they will give him to the Jewish, uh, to the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities. They will mock him, spit upon him, flog him, and they will crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. Jesus was not caught off guard at all by anything that was taking place in this moment. Mark uses a great deal of restraint when he describes the crucifixion. In fact, all the gospel writers use a great deal of restraint. If you just read the gospel text, they give us the G-rated version of crucifixion. But remember, it is the grossest, cruelest, most hideous form of execution. The reason the gospel writers use so much restraint is because they understood their audience knew all of the gruesome details of crucifixion. Everybody living in the Roman Empire of the first century, they knew how a crucifixion went down. They knew how vile it was. They knew how vicious it was. They knew how bloody it was. They understood that Jesus would have first been scourged. Jesus would have been given over to the Roman soldiers, a particular centurion would have been the presiding officer of the entire affair. That centurion would have led Jesus to that whipping post, tied him there, stripped him of nearly all of his clothes, if not all of his clothes. The Roman soldiers would have used a small-handled whip, commonly called a cat of nine tails. At the end of this small handle, there are numerous leather straps that are rather lengthy. At the end of each strip of leather is tied broken pieces of glass, jagged rock, and bone. And the Roman soldiers probably would have taken turns taking that cat of nine tails whip and with as much strength as those macho men could muster, they would begin to flog the criminal, in this case, Jesus. With each lashing of the whip, those pieces of glass and broken bone and rock would have dug into the flesh of our Lord. 
And with each lashing whip, they would have ripped it back with such force that chunks of his human flesh would have come off of his skeleton. Blood would have began to squirt and ooze and drop and pool right there around the whipping post. And these Roman soldiers went whip after whip, lash after lash, until the the centurion, the presiding officer, would have said, enough is enough. And Jesus would have stood there in a pool of his own blood. Now, before we think these Romans are barbaric and these bloodthirsty animals were individuals who just love to see people suffer, before we think that they are barbaric, can I just remind you of the movies that we watch? in this very civilized society called America, the movies that we pay good money to go see, movies that have more blood and guts than you could ever imagine took place at a crucifixion. Can you imagine all of the vile things that we allow ourselves to see and we call ourselves a sophisticated society? Let me go one step further. We call ourselves very progressive, very sophisticated, and yet without blinking an eye, thousands upon thousands of unborn, unwanted children will be aborted this day and every day in the United States of America. And we call the Romans barbaric. These barbaric Romans, these bloodthirsty individuals, They laughed, they jeered, they mocked Jesus. The one thing that is interesting to note is that oftentimes the criminal never made it off the whipping post. Because of the enormous blood loss, typically, a lot of times, the individual would simply die right there. But not Jesus. I don't even think that Jesus buckled. I don't even think that Jesus went down. I think that Jesus, after each whip, stood and took the beating that we should have earned. He took the whipping that he did not deserve. Why? Because by his stripes, we are healed. Jesus stood there and took the whipping that we should have endured. Eventually, the centurion had to say, enough is enough. No man can take this much. Enough. They took him off that whipping post. They, in mockery, put a purple robe on his back. They twisted a crown of thorns, shoved it onto his brow, punctured his forehead. Then they began to punch him and ridicule him, slap him. In jest, they bowed down in front of him. Then... They ripped off that purple robe and all that blood began to ooze again. They tied him to a cross beam. They ordered for him to walk the streets of Jerusalem. He stumbled and he staggered. As he made his way through the streets, there were people lining the streets. Some were making fun of him. Some were pointing and laughing at Jesus, but there was a lot of people. There were a lot of people that had sadness etched on their face. 
Disbelief, horror, in fact. Almost as if they thought the Roman government had made a mistake. Jesus was almost too weak to even carry his own cross. The centurion gave the nod to one of his soldiers. That soldier found a complete stranger, a man by the name of Simon of Cyrene. You, help him carry his cross. Together, they made their way up the winding hill of the skull-shaped place called Golgotha. And there, the Roman soldiers, under the direction of the centurion, they stretched the arms of Jesus wide. They took rusty spikes and they uh, drove them into his wrist. They took a long rusty spike and they uh, positioned one foot on top of the other and they drove it through his ankles. These Roman centurions, this was not their first rodeo. These soldiers, they, they understood uh, how to perform a crucifixion. They knew how to position the spikes so that the body under its weight would not fall off the cross. They knew how to position the spikes so that it would be extremely painful. That they would be able to split the nerve endings so that pain would pulsate through the extremities of the arms and the legs of the criminal. So that when that criminal who was trying to writhe in pain and rise up to catch a gasp of air, that it would be excruciating and that it would be uh, even more agonizing as they suffocated under the weight of their own gravity. No, these Roman soldiers, under the direction of this centurion, they knew how to inflict pain in crucifixion. This had become an art and a science. They knew how to do it. And they knew how to do it, quote unquote, well. So that anybody who passed by would say, I never I never want to be like that guy. I never want to get at odds with the Roman government. So they nail me to a tree. Those Roman soldiers, they hoisted Jesus into the air. His cross came to a thunderous thud in its position in the earth. And there Jesus dangled. In the air, nailed to a cross. He was positioned between two thieves, robbers. The interpretation of a thief and a robber is probably a poor rendition of that word. Probably these two guys are insurrectionists. They had come up against the Roman government. They had led in some type of rebellion. Because if you're just a common thief, if you're just a, 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 an individual that robs a few things, you're not a person that's probably going to end up on a cross. But if you're an insurrectionist, if you are a rebel rouser, if you are leading a rebellion, if you're coming against the government, then that exactly will be the spot where they, where, where they will nail you. And Jesus was crucified. Mark tells us it was beginning in the third hour, which is 9 a.m. in the morning. And Jesus, for the first several hours, he interacted with the two thieves on the cross he interacted with his mother that was there at the foot of the cross he said things like father forgive them for they don't even know what they're doing son behold thy mother mother behold thy son that while he was writhing in pain he was taking care of his mom and giving her care to the one named john the beloved disciple 
For those first several hours, Jesus is very much aware of what's going on around him. But as the time goes on, the pain intensifies. The headache is throbbing. His heart is pounding out of his chest. The blood is beginning to thicken all throughout his body. He has excruciating pain. And the Bible says that about the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness that came over the land. That means from high noon until three in the afternoon, there was darkness. When the S-U-N sun is supposed to be at the apex of its journey across the horizon, it refused to shine. The sun was draped in darkness, a darkness that could be felt. Everybody, the Roman soldiers, the centurion, the presiding officer, everybody's looking around thinking, this is odd. This has never happened before. What is going on? This is strange. About three o'clock in the afternoon, it is Jesus who calls out in a loud voice, Aloy, Aloy, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22. The very next line of Psalm 22 says, why are you so far from saving me? In other words, God the Son is asking God the Father, where are you? In Mark chapters 14 and 15, the author wants us to feel, wants us to hear, wants us to know the betrayal and the abandonment and the rejection. So in Mark 14 and 15, everybody rejects Jesus. He's handed over by one of his very own, Judas Iscariot, for 30 pieces of silver. And Judas betrays him with a simple kiss on the cheek on that given night after everybody had gone into the garden everybody scattered not one of his disciples stuck with him through the entire evening even the ringleader of the disciples the apostle named Peter denied that he even knew the Lord and now in Mark 15 there's the ultimate betrayal Now, in Mark 15, there's the ultimate abandonment. It is God-forsakenness. It is God-forsaking God. In that moment on the cross, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is exactly what Jesus was talking about in the garden. For in the garden, he prays to the Father, Let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. Is there another way for us to accomplish salvation without our relationship having to be fragmented and severed and torn asunder? Is there a way for us to accomplish this without God-forsakenness? And the answer was no. And Jesus prayed, not my will, but your will be done. Not once or twice, but three times. He was furrowing faithfulness into his spirit. And he walked out in determination and confidence that he was going to be obedient to the Lord. And in this moment, this is exactly what he's feeling. What he anticipated in the garden becomes a reality at Calvary. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You and I cannot understand the cross of Christ apart from substitutionary atonement. That Jesus literally, physically, and bodily took our spot. 
He is our substitute. He took the whipping that we deserved. He took the punishment that should be meted out against us. He took our hell upon himself. And eternity's worth of condemnation was squeezed into a three-hour window in the third decade of the first century on that faithful Friday when Jesus writhed in pain and declared, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The reason Jesus was forsaken was so you would be forgiven. The reason Jesus was abandoned is so you could be accepted. The reason Jesus was bruised was so you would be blessed. The reason he became sin was so you could become saved. Jesus in that moment who knew no sin became sin for us. And Jesus died in our spot. You cannot understand the cross apart from substitutionary atonement. And Jesus died for us in our place. It is Mark who says that in a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. That's significant. Once again, this would not have gone unnoticed by the presiding officer, the centurion. At the end of the whole ordeal, Jesus gives out a loud cry. This centurion had watched hundreds, if not thousands. He had overseen thousands of crucifixions. Nobody finishes with a loud cry. They finish with a whimpering. They finish with a whisper. They finish like a sparkler on the 4th of July. They just kind of fizzle and fade out. They finish cursing. They finish angry. They, they finish distraught. Jesus finishes in a loud cry as if to say that the way Jesus lived, that's the way he died. He's calling the shots. Mark wants us to know that Jesus is the mighty Messiah. He's the one who's calling the shots. Nobody takes his life from him, but Jesus willingly lays down his life for us. And if he has the authority to lay it down, he has the authority to pick it back up again. In a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. It's the other gospel writers that remind us and inform us that that loud cry was it is finished to telestai. Mission accomplished. The work you have set me to do is now completed. To telestai. Salvation has been secured. It is finished. In a loud cry, he gave up his ghost, he bowed his head, and he died. Jesus is the one calling the shots. Whether he's on a boat in a storm, whether he is looking at a paralytic, whether he is staring into the tomb of his best friend Lazarus, or whether he is dangling precariously on a cross made of wood, it is Jesus who calls the shots. He declares it is finished. He bows his head and he gives up the ghost. The curtain in the temple, Mark says, is ripped from top to bottom. Symbolic that God has come to man so that man can now get to God. And Jesus dies as a mighty Messiah. The fact that it only took six hours is really shocking. 
In fact, when Joseph of Arimathea gains an audience with Pontius Pilate, he says, can I please have the body of Jesus? And Pilate says, it's only been a few hours. He can't be dead yet. There's no way. He calls for the centurion, the presiding officer. That presiding officer comes in to the court of Pilate. Pilate says, "Uh, Jesus of Nazareth, is he dead? Yes, sir, came the reply. So quickly? Yes, sir. He gave the order to give the body to Joseph of Arimathea. The reason Pilate is shocked is because this is not Pilate's first rodeo either. He knows how crucifixions are supposed to go. He understands that sometimes people linger there for hours upon hours upon hours, days upon days. And sometimes those Roman soldiers have to break the legs of those criminals so that they don't have any strength left or the ability to push up to catch a breath of air because eventually that just leads in the suffocation process which really is what gets just about everybody who's on the cross is suffocation Uh, literally they just choke themselves to death and so if you break the shins of that criminal he can't push up he can't breathe he can't breathe he can't live Pilate is surprised it only took a few hours only a few hours yes This Roman centurion uh, plays an important role in the gospel story. It is Mark who gives us the confession of the centurion. When he sees how Jesus died, he says, surely this man was a son of God. Surely this man was a son of God. If you allow me to use my sanctified imagination, um, I wonder if this centurion had ever met Jesus prior to this day. Had he ever heard Jesus preach? Had he ever witnessed one of the mighty miracles of Jesus? Did this centurion of Mark 15 know the story of the Capernaum centurion of Luke chapter 7? In Luke chapter 7, we are told the story of a centurion who had a servant whom he valued highly. The servant was sick, and so he knew that Jesus was a miracle worker, and not being a Jew himself, he thought to himself, the best way to gain an audience is to send a delegation of Jewish leaders. And so he sent Jewish leaders, and they really, they just botched the negotiation process. They went up to Jesus, and they said, now Jesus, this uh, centurion in Capernaum, uh, he has a servant whom he values highly. That servant is sick, and you need to come and heal him, because the centurion is a good guy, and he is kind to Israel, and he's very benevolent, uh, and he's built our synagogue, so you need to help him. When some of the friends of the centurion heard how the Jewish people negotiated with Jesus, he got so frustrated, he sent another delegation of personal friends. He told them exactly what to say. They went up to Jesus, and they said, this is what my friend the centurion says. I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. I'm a man of authority, just like you. I tell this soldier to go and he goes. I tell that soldier to come and he comes. All you have to do is say the word and I believe my servant will be healed. And Jesus responded, I have not seen such great faith even in all of Israel. And before those friends got home, 
to the centurion's house in Capernaum, that servant was healed. I wonder, I wonder if the centurion of Luke chapter 7 sent an email to the centurion of Mark chapter 15. I wonder if they sent a text message to each other. I wonder if at the next gathering of centurions, at, 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 at the next conference that they had, I wonder if they got together and I wonder if the centurion of Mark 15 had heard the story of the centurion of Luke chapter 7. I wonder about that because in this moment of Mark 15, this centurion, the presiding officer, he looks up and he says, surely this man was a son of God. When he saw how Jesus died, Jesus died like no other man. Tied to the whipping post, he took more whipping than any one man should be able to endure. Jesus was punched in the face. The high priest, the Jewish leaders came. These old men slapped him, punched him, spit upon him. And that centurion had to think to himself, now I don't know any other 33-year-old man who would not retaliate with another punch. I don't know any 33-year-old criminal who wouldn't punch back, fight back, spit back, or do something. Yet Jesus did none of that. And as Jesus was walking through the streets, the centurion noticed how people were sad. Grief was on their face and he must have wondered, did we get this one wrong? And as he watched Jesus writhe in pain, how quickly Jesus died, how decisively Jesus died, how, how much in charge Jesus seemed to be. The presiding officer, the centurion thought to himself, I have never seen anybody die like that. Surely this man was a son of God. That's a profound statement. It's a, it's a mighty confession. Because a Roman centurion is employed by the Roman government. And by law, he has to say Caesar is son of God. He has to say Caesar is son of God. Yet on this day, I don't know all that he's saying, but at least what he's saying, in this day, this guy hanging in front of me is better than Caesar. This man is son of God. I've told you before that Mark frames his gospel on two confessions. The first one's in Mark chapter 8. The second one's in Mark chapter 15. The first one is found on the lips of a Jew. The second one here is found on the lips of a Gentile. The first one is spoken by the apostle named Peter. The second one is spoken by the anonymous centurion of our story. In the first one, the disciples at Caesarea Philippi, who do people say that I am? Some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. So others say another prophet. What about you? Who do you say that I am? It is Peter who stands up and says, you are Christ. Here, in Mark chapter 15, it's the anonymous centurion, that Gentile, that employee of the Roman military, the Roman government, who looks up and says that Jesus is son of God. Now, these two confessions fit in nicely to Mark's overall purpose. His overall purpose is given to us in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. In the, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the son of God. From the very opening line, the reader of Mark's text understands that this gospel track is written to communicate the identity of Jesus. That Jesus is Christ, Son of God. Halfway through it, he is Christ. It's found on the lips of the apostle named Peter. At the very end of it, chapter 15, it is declared by anonymous centurion, this man is the Son of God. 
Mark arranges his gospel on these two confessions. Because this is the reason of why he wrote the gospel track. So the people in the first century and people in the 21st century would know who Jesus is. Jesus, my friend, is the Savior who is rejected by many but received by any who acknowledge he is Christ, Son of God. Now, that's pretty good. If you're taking notes, you may want to jot that one down. Come on, say it again. That Jesus is the Savior who is rejected by many but received by any who acknowledge he is Christ, Son of God. Jesus is the Savior who is rejected by many but received by any who acknowledge that he is Christ, Son of God. The reason Mark writes his gospel is so that anybody who will read it will understand the identity of Jesus. Let me put one more layer on this before I wrap the bow, give the invitation, and sit down. Stop and think that when the original audience living in the mid-60s of the first century read this gospel track, they get to the end of it and it's a Roman centurion who declares a holy confession of Christ. Stop and think with me. The original audience would have hated Roman centurions. They would have despised Roman military. Why? Because Mark writes his gospel to believers who are being persecuted because of the faith. Who are the hands and feet of those doing the persecution? The Roman military. It's the Roman centurions. It's the Roman soldiers who are confiscating property, who are kidnapping children under the cover of night, who are throwing your friends into the Colosseum where the lions will devour them. It's the Roman soldiers and the Roman centurions who, who are taking your aunts and your uncles, uh, your mom and your dad. It's, it's those soldiers that are taking those individuals and filleting them alive, spearing them, putting them on a pole, setting them uh, with, with lighter fluid so they will lose Nero's gardens at night. It's the hands of the Roman soldiers that are inflicting enormous persecution on the original recipients of this text. And you get to the end of it, and that Roman centurion is an any. He's an any. That Jesus is the Savior who's rejected by many, but received by any who acknowledge him as Christ and Son of God. So that Jesus can be received by Jew or Gentile. He can be received by male or female, rich or poor, young or old, friend or foe. The gospel that you've been given must go out to all because we don't know who those individuals are, are going to be that receive the gospel. So we take the gospel to anybody. Yes, it's going to be rejected by many. Yesterday we went to Selma and the gospel was rejected by many. But there were some innies. There were some people that were there that received the gospel. And how did they receive it? They acknowledged Jesus is Christ, Son of God. Anybody who acknowledges Jesus is Christ, Son of God, is taken from death unto life. I wonder that this day, are there any hard-headed Roman centurions in this sanctuary? Anybody in here who just 
needs to take a peek at the crucified Christ. And as you look at him, you must conclude the same thing the Roman centurion concluded. That surely, surely, this man is son of God. Friend, you declare that Jesus is Christ, son of God. Your sins nailed to the cross and you bear them no more. So praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. This morning I wonder, is there anybody here who needs to come and accept this Jesus, this sweet gospel? Is there anybody here who's in desperate need of this Jesus in your life? Today he is here. He extends the invitation to any who will receive him as Christ, son of God. Maybe you have a son or a daughter Maybe you have a coworker. Maybe you have a family member. Maybe you have a friend. Maybe you have an enemy. Maybe you have somebody who you know that that person does not know Jesus. In this moment, friend, you pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for their salvation. They do not need to reject Jesus. They need to receive him as Christ, son of God. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation. And Lord, if there are any here who will acknowledge that you are Christ, Son of God. I pray that they come today, find life, forgiveness, faith in you. We ask this in Jesus' name.